0: Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Today we have with us Magnus. What's your last name, Magnus? Madsen. Matson. Awesome. From uh who lives in Aarhus. And uh it I hadn't heard of the Flix programming language, which, which uh we'll get into, but um it came across like Hacker News and stuff a few months ago. And when I when Bruce and I started looking at it together, we went to the design principles page and I was like Oh my God, this programming language is like everything that I've learned in the last 25 years of programming or something. Like, it, I was just shocked at how aligned it was with everything I believe in the principles that, that I. So, anyways, I was like, we got to have Magnus on. Well, Thank you. Those are some bad words. <laughs> you,
1: you started out with design principles, or at least you developed them early on. You know, Python eventually had the zen of Python, but that was. Long after the the language was created, whereas it seemed like you said, "Here's what I want to do. I want to solve all the problems," <laughs> and and it's like, oh, it, was that an option all along? I, I didn't know that was you know because it seems like every time I pick up a language, it's like, oh, and then you decided to do this, and now I'm now I'm disappointed because you didn't really think that through. I mean, right now with with Scala, I am really having a hard time with the infinite operator overloading thing because it's like, no, that just that doesn't help people understand things.
0: There clearly wasn't a design principle. Uh, which here, let's pick one. Uh, simple, not easy. That's that's a good one. That that I would say maybe maybe um, the operator overloading isn't aligned with that principle.
2: Yeah, <laughs> maybe a few others. I think, you know, when we started working on language, we also actually didn't have any principles in the very beginning. Um, But then over time, right, uh, as a language designer, you're suddenly forced into making some decisions. And then instead of just saying, like, you know, why should I do do it like this or like that? We tried to have some discussions about, uh, you know, what are the trade-offs here? And also, like, Uh, you know, people would argue for or against. So then we need to have some reasoning behind it, right? So should it be like this or should it be like this? And then I started writing them down at some point. I think first maybe it was just like in a private file. And then they sort of made it a little bit into GitHub and we started discussing. And sometimes there would be a discussion about a feature and then that would end up being, oh, okay, we actually need to have a principle here. And at some point it made it to the website. And then we started thinking actually that, it would be nice if other languages had this too, because now this is a quick way to, to show what is the language all about. Right. And so in the case of- And Flix, helps example, settle
0: any debates or, or- Yeah. Yeah, like any time a question comes up of like, what do we do here? You can yes. go back to the principles. And if the principles don't tell you what to do, then it's time to write a new principle, right? And you need a
2: new principle, <laughs> yes. And sometimes you discover that you've made, uh, you know, maybe a, a small error or you need to refine a principle. Um, so that's yeah. also happened a little bit.
0: Yeah, and and maybe like at some point principles are in con- conflict or seem to be in conflict. And then, yes, yes. and then you have to revise to try to get rid of the conflict or something. Yeah,
1: the only time I've ever seen it done was in Python. And again, that was, that was in hindsight. And it does seem like, boy, if you started out with something like this really early in the process, it would just make the language. I would say Kotlin has those principles somewhere, but it's not, you know, I, I inferred them by the way that the language was designed.
0: Well, a lot of times I think that the culture contains the mm. principles, but they're not mm-hmm. They're not written down.
1: <laughs> and I think it's really helpful to have them written down, especially for newcomers.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think so, so too. And also like, you know, um, I won't claim to be designing a language necessarily for everyone and for every single use case. But having them written down, I think you can look at it and see, is this some, some value in some sense I believe in, right? Uh, so, yeah. for example, you know, we have this thing with unused variables. And when I show people the language, they're always kind of upset about it because, you know, oh, I won't let my program compile. You know, I have an unused variable, but so what, right? But then other people, you know, if you've written a big program and, you know, there's a bug and you sit us stare at the code and you can't find it. And at the end you discover ah oh, this variable was unused and and you know I had a small typo it should have been e2 instead of e1 or whatever and then you suddenly appreciate why this principle is there it's yeah. an error
1: it's an and error this yes This variable should be an error i and totally it is. yeah I, that,
0: it, and that's written down in the principles
1: and if right. you don't like that you should be a php programmer or something
0: <laughs> Maybe PHP is more aligned with your values. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a better way of putting it. You, you, you really right. did learn something from that NVC class we took.
0: <laughs> so Magnus, uh, thank you for joining us. And I would love to start with just like a little bit of history of the language and yeah. and what your involvement with it has been. And yeah. Yeah, yeah what sure. made you say,
1: the world needs another programming language, and I'm going to do it right this time?
2: Ah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, that's everyone is asked that if they design a language, right? So so maybe I'll give you the, the standard, the well-developed answer for that, right? So it's, um, you know, we need a new programming languages for the same reasons that we need more efficient airplanes, uh, safer cars, and more ergonomic chairs, right? So, you know, we already have chairs. So, you know, why do we need new chairs? We already have airplanes. You know, why are they not good enough? We already have cars. Why can't we just stay with the first cars we developed? Now, I think you know, in programming languages and programming design, it's, you know, it takes a lot of time for sort of, you know, the good ideas to be found and make their way into real languages. So you know, you, maybe you don't see the development as quickly as if you look at an airplane. And you can also, you know, if you look at an airplane from today and one from, I don't know, 50 years ago, it's very clear to see the difference. With languages, it's, it's a bit harder to, to illustrate that. So I think that's my that's my answer for why we need new programming languages. Um
0: there's probably our, an aspect to like like productivity. Like we want we want developers to to have definitely. better productivity, build better software. Yes. And and the tools that we use are very integral in in that.
2: Yes. And you could say um so my on my PhD I did uh, research on program analysis for JavaScript. And so You know, JavaScript was sort of, um, how to say it, perhaps less well-designed from the beginning.
0: Um, (laughs) Can you even (laughs) say it was designed?
2: Uh, um, so, you know,
0: there are some things the- like art where it's just like, like, <laughs> like, you know, like the art where you just like throw stuff at the wall, I think. Um, it was.
1: Pollock, Jackson Pollock.
0: Okay. That's the Jackson Pollock of programming languages.
1: <laughs> it's, I, I, um, would, I again argue that that was PHP, but uh, <laughs> PHP, true.
2: PHP, too. I mean, we've uh, yeah. maybe all read the with PHP, a fractal of bad design. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, and so anyway, so I was trying to reason about, you know, JavaScript, right? And so looking at programs. And they're like, you know, buggy programs and has all kinds of disastrous consequences. And then you think about, you know, why is it like this? Like, why does the language permit this, right? And, you know, this bug, you know, could have been prevented if, you know, there was just some simple restrictions on how you're supposed to write your program. And so I think, you know, the challenge of doing that sort of also grew into this idea in my mind that I wanted to design a language that was fairly strict and principled about what you're allowed to do. And try to give you some basic guarantees and that gives you some knowledge about your program
0: yeah i, I speaking of javascript i don't know we probably shouldn't talk too much do too much javascript bashing okay, speak but,
2: about that for um, hours
0: <laughs> i just saw a tweet that was it was javascript where it was like percent, and it starts with like percent uh zero dot five or something like that and i don't know it parses to zero and then they keep increasing the decimal places so then it gets to like zero dot zero dot five and then zero dot zero dot zero dot five and when you get i don't know six decimal places in or something like that all of a sudden percent returns five instead of zero you're like oh my god like what is (laughs) yeah what (laughs) yeah
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw that one. It was just like, okay. I mean, at this point I'm not even surprised.
0: <laughs> right. It's yeah, just true. like Yeah.
1: Sure, of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think like like w- what I dream of is a programming language that there is no puzzlers session. You know, like right, at the conference exactly. like the puzzlers that you get it's like like puzzlers to me indicate that you've done something like the design yes. has gone wrong. Yes.
2: You should aim not to have any puzzlers. I think that's. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but some some people will argue, right? So with Flix, for example, it's being strict with various things. I'm sure we'll get into details. That you know, it's a hindrance to prototyping because in JavaScript or Python, you are allowed to do pretty much everything, and the computer is at your command. And uh, you know, I think maybe this is a reasonable argument, but maybe that also means we should separate. You know, I'm writing a prototype in a hundred lines of code versus I'm building a. Huge system for deployment, you know, in some serious application.
0: Yeah, I guess there's trade offs there, right? Like, like it does when you when you spend a lot of time trying to satisfy the constraints of a stricter programming language, that doesn't always feel like progress, or it doesn't. It feels like it's inhibiting you from the kind of uh, early iterations that you're maybe doing on on thinking about structure of a program and data modeling and some of that stuff so i can kind of just
2: experimentation and maybe in some sense especially if you're a beginner you just want to run your program and then javascript it will run and it will (laughs) maybe print something
0: yeah so go ahead bruce
1: um yeah that's a quick you know <clears throat> I've been oh, thinking wow. we should have uh Guido van Rossum on the on the <laughs> podcast cuz I've known him for a long time <clears throat> but um one of the questions I want to ask him is like okay you know we have especially in the functional programming world we're going oh man everything python does is kind of wrong <laughs> and yet <laughs> it solves so many problems yeah, so I it's can. like i, I want to deal with what what's, what's going on there it's like it still works for a lot of things it doesn't work for everything or i don't know or everything is at,
0: wrong but something is still right
1: there's yeah i mean there's there's so much that's right about it that people can do amazing things and it's only when you reach the i don't know sometimes it's performance sometimes it's I don't know I, you know I, it's like so how come it still works how come it still works as well as it does and and then there's these this domain of problems where um say maybe you want rust it's just like well we can't have a garbage collector it's got to be totally fast and so it's like oh well that's probably what you get you don't want c plus plus or c or go or anything you want rust and then then there's this domain that we're i think we've all been talking about which is like okay but what if we want rock solid reliability every piece has to be reliable and then we have to have a composition mechanism that allows us to put those pieces together in a reliable fashion at least that's my thesis about all this i mean
2: there's also this research and i think people you know also just have experience right that you would rather find the box sort of early while while developing it than, than having to uh, you know find it uh, you know sometime later or even in production, right? Yeah. And and so the idea that you have sort of, you know, production code running out there with some computations and then, you know, the local variable is not used, for example
0: you know maybe it's just kind of concerning it's the yeah that's the worst time to find out about a bug
1: <laughs> well and it also suggests that you will always be finding bugs
0: hmm. Being, yeah.
1: you know if if you can find them in production then you're always going to be finding them in production
0: yeah yeah so okay so how long have you been working on flicks
1: so I it
2: started with a research project back in 2016, I think. And we were looking more into this uh, uh, functional and logic programming aspect uh, with DataLog. I'm sure we can talk about it later. Yes,
0: it definitely. Um, and that. so,
2: but, you know, I, you know, when you do research, you know, there's sort of, you know, short term and that's like, you know, coming up with an idea, writing a paper and these kinds of things. But I already knew that I wanted to design a programming language. I just needed to find sort of an excuse and a path. <laughs> so that's where it really started. And uh, I worked on it. For a couple of years in in Waterloo, and then I came back to Denmark. Uh, I was first at a, another university, alba University, and then I came to Aarhus University. And so I've been working for, on it for the last uh, several years. And over time, sort of more people have joined. So I have my uh, PhD student uh, Jonathan working on it, and there's people in the open source community. There are some student programmers and so on. So sort of have been growing slowly that way, very organically, I would say. Too.
0: Huh. And and it came across my radar as i said a few months ago it seemed like like there was i don't know more interest all of a sudden uh and yeah and suddenly. When...
2: I, I think it was because Runar yeah, that you had on earlier uh, yeah. uh, of,
0: uh, unison fame he uh, he uh, i think that's where i actually heard words
2: yeah
1: yeah nice yeah he said he liked it
0: yeah huh. Yes, yeah, yeah, so right. give a uh, give us a rundown on like what the state of Flix is, and 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 then we can go into the print some of the principles. Sure,
2: yeah, I can do the the sales pitch, or I can <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Um Yeah, so we've been working on it for for uh, several years. I'll say first that you know we are trying to build a real language. So that means you know the design choices we make with the compiler and testing and so on. We take that very seriously. Uh, we have twelve thousand manually written tests um the compiler project itself to give you a sense of scope is like one hundred and eighty thousand lines of code
0: well um
2: so yeah so you know it's it's quite what's it written in it's written in scala
0: okay Uh, oh i think we saw that yeah uh, yeah Yeah. the
2: next best uh, programming language that i know
0: (laughs) um (laughs) we i've done a lot of scala and bruce and i and another friend are currently writing a book about scala three and um So we, we, we like Scala. It's, it's a Yes, great language. yes, me too, me
2: too. I, I think it's a great language. I'm also, I you can definitely see the inspiration in Flex, Yeah, But it also tries to make some different trade-offs. Um, talking about the language itself, so it's it's a functional, imperative, and logic programming language. So basically uh, having all the paradigms, except the object-oriented one, which might huh. be a bit strange. Um, it has a type inference, so it's uh, very much in the family of like Haskell and OCaml. Um, but it's not a functional language like uh, purely functional language in the sense of Haskell, because it does have imperative programming, so you can have your know, mutation and these kinds of things. Um, it doesn't have classes um, like you know object-oriented uh, languages. Instead, it has uh, type classes. So in that way, it's like Haskell.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, and it and has then, ADT,
0: ADTs, so you can yes, at least do yes, a algebraic data types.
2: types, pattern matching, first-class functions. Um, yeah parametric nice. polymorphism it has yeah records. no wait
1: what is parametric polymorphism because that's just generics that's
2: just when you're an academic you say it like that no that wasn't
1: the word <laughs> that wasn't the one i was looking for it was actually parametric um you mean effect parametric. polymorphism yeah uh, yeah i think it was effect polymorphism right that was it that yeah. was the question
2: so, So, one of the unique selling points of of Flix, I think, as of today, is that um, it has an effect system that tracks whether an expression is pure or not. And so, what does it mean? It approximately means that if something is pure, it's a bit like being in Haskell. So, you know that it cannot have any side effects. What does that mean? It means that it's not going to mutate memory. It also means it's not going to read the system clock or throw a random coin. So, that means that expression will evaluate to the same value if given the same Inputs if it's a function, for example. Uh, on the other hand, you can also have expressions that are that are impure, so you know printing to the console, mutating arrays, and so on. And so the Flix language knows for every expression whether it's pure or not. Now, what about a higher order function? So you have like map, right? You want to map a function over a list. Um, well, is that pure or not? That depends on the purity of the function you're mapping. So you have a list and you map like something with print, then clearly now the whole thing is impure.
0: Ah. If you
2: map like, you know, x goes to x plus one, then the whole thing is is pure.
0: So the language knows that if you're if you're using a, a functor that is impure, then then that then the, the, the whole thing to, is impure. The whole thing is then impure. Yes. Yeah.
2: So effect uh, polymorphism is just a very fancy way of saying something simple that sometimes a function that has a function argument, its purity depends on the purity of the function argument.
0: Huh. That's cool. I think that that's that's the first time I've seen a language that has that concept. So I,
2: I think I think we are the one of the first languages to have this. Especially, you know, to, to make it a little bit technical, right? So we are in the, you know, Hindley Milner style kind of type system, yeah. which means we have full type inference. So to compare to some languages, they have like a kind of partial type inference. So sometimes type inference will fail, and you have to put an annotation. But in Flix or Camel, for that matter. Well, if there is a type error, it's not because inference fails. It's because your program is somehow wrong. So you know, you need to go and change things, not add annotation, change things. Yeah. And so we have this even with this, uh, effect effects system. So we also, you know, infer these effects without you having to, to write anything.
1: Huh? So you don't actually have to annotate whether something is pure or impure.
2: You don't, but now okay. we get to this point about the principles, not always being exact. So if you look at some Flix code, you might say, what what is he talking about with inference? Because I see these signatures and the signatures are clearly annotations. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me try to clarify that. So when you write a research paper and the way the theory works, it could be completely without signatures, like in Haskell. That actually would work. But as a software engineering trade-off, many people like the top level things, especially things that are exposed to the outside should have uh, signatures. Um, and so really APIs, as a, yeah, exactly as a design choice, we mandate top level things to have signatures because programmers, I mean, at least for me, it's nice to think about, well, what should this function do? So I want to write a signature and then off I go inside and I write a lot of code.
1: But could you automate, I mean, like um, IntelliJ in Scala will automatically generate the type signatures for you?
2: Uh, in principle, yes, we could do that. We don't have okay. it, but the theory supports this. Yes.
1: So, but but you you see as the programming process, the programmer should first generate the signature and then the implementation. I think so, yeah. Okay. But
2: notice if you have local functions inside of top level function, you don't have to write any signatures. Huh. Any local <laughs> the, function to declare, you declare, you can skip this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that doesn't need to be exposed.
2: Yes. And this and is that, really on the design aspect, not really on the requirements of the type system because there we could have omitted them entirely. There also actually there are three three advantages of the top level signatures. So the first thing is it's kind of a documentation because it expresses intent. Yeah. Uh, The second thing is it gives us parallel type checking. Uh, Why? Well, because when we type check things, if I have the signature of a function, I don't have to go into it. I just assume the signature to be correct, and then later I know that the body will be compared to the signature, so it's okay. So the type check on Flix is just parallel by default. That's cool. Uh, And what was the third thing? I forget. I know.
1: It sounded like a third thing.
2: There is a third thing. It's on the list. (laughs) Let me look it up.
1: I I really like the way you think about this. You know, it's just so much. Because my experience with programming languages is, is that the designer rapidly gets into the details and they forget about the higher level way, you know, concepts. And I have to go in and figure them out and explain them to the reader. Right, right. And I, I... Found
2: the, I found the third thing, so yes. it is that uh, you get better error messages. And the reason is that uh... you assume the signature is correct.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so you know, if this function takes a string and an end, and you're calling it with, well, I don't know, two integers, then we blame the caller. Because right. it doesn't match the
0: signature. Whereas, so whereas also if you did explicitly charge. say it, yeah. you would, you would, it would infer. Oh, you're yeah. passing an int, so the the then 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 the body would probably then be wrong as it tries to use an int. Yes, an, an...
2: so then you might get an error, not really local to where the problem is, because here before right. you at the top level to make it an API in some sense, you have to specify the interface.
0: Yeah. That makes hmm. sense. Yeah, and, and you do have some principles around error messages and helpfulness <laughs> of error messages. Um, yeah, tell us more about that. W-
1: was that
2: inspired by Elm? Oh, definitely. So there mm-hmm. are these two blog posts, right? Uh, what is
0: it? Uh, From Evan.
2: Yeah, yeah. Compilers as assistance, I think, and uh, human... Uh readable error messages or something like this. Mm -hmm. So those principles are very inspired by that. Uh, But one thing I also read in a paper recently that we started changing a little bit was uh, to not have too negative language. So so previous versions of FIT compiler says illegal something. (laughs) Huh. <laughs> you, you know you did something illegal so go straight to jail feel
0: very shameful about what you've done
2: yes
1: exactly are the police coming
2: <laughs> yes <Right. laughs> so now we just try to explain it more i think as the paper suggests is a little bit more sort of from the program's point of view like you know oh, these are the things i, I, expected I see. expected and, this
0: and yes didn't get yes. that <laughs> and i was mm-hmm.
2: unable to figure this out right right <laughs>
0: Yeah, maybe because uh, of the limitations. It's like the compiler takes the blame. It's like, sorry, yes. I don't understand yes. what you're trying to do here. Steve, it's once blaming again, it's
1: the influence of nonviolent communication. <laughs>
0: that's right. nonviolent compilers. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. yes. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, and that's... Then we
2: have some other principles, like you know, um, you know. Someone pointed out also, I forget who it was, that you know, in many cases, maybe eighty percent of the time, you just need to see a few words of the error message because you've seen it before. So when you're programming, you're, you're, you're familiar with error messages over time. You get to, to know them and their structures. You just need to see a few words, and you can figure out what's wrong. But then there's the other case where you've never seen this error message before, and now you need a lot of more information. So you have to sort of satisfy both, uh, both huh. use cases. Mm. And so we try to give a one-line summary first that you can scan quickly, and ideally from left to right. And huh. then after, we get more verbose about what's wrong that's what we're
1: trying to do the worst experience that i ever had with error messages was in the early days of c++ when they were just adding <laughs> generics and if you did something wrong it would give you pages yes. of incomprehensible gobbledygook and you could not very it precise was useful. <laughs> it was it was it was totally useless it was yes. and and really frustrating so huh. I, I think this is really important.
2: And I think yep. all languages have done a lot here. As, mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's based on these uh, blog posts, but also sort of just as a, you know, you, you couldn't get away with making a modern language today, I think, and just give sort of one line garbled, you know, messages, or as you say, in the other case, in C++, emitting a, line, hundreds and hundreds of lines of <laughs> internal yeah. stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think like a lot of what's happened in this area is, Trying to make the error messages, the compiler messages um, helpful for the user, like like telling them what they do what they can do to fix it. Yeah. And I think Rust has <laughs> is, is really done a good job of this. Yeah. It's like like the, the compiler's like, Yeah, I couldn't figure this out. And here's what you should probably try. Yes. <laughs> and it yes. gives you some suggestions and um, yeah, and you even say that in your in your principles that including suggestions for how to correct the problem. That's
1: yeah. so nice. <laughs> so i mean you can
2: take this far right you could try even for these program repair techniques where you try to guess but at least you know uh, you also have a principle like you know if if we don't know what to say we can maybe say how it's different from other languages or we could say what a common problem is
0: yeah so you know
2: maybe you're encountering this common problem and this is this is what you should try to do
0: yeah yeah so for some of the other principles there's just there's so much that i'm just like a hundred percent this is just so much better like no null no value like like it just doesn't seem possible to me to create a language today that has anything like null. like that's like that just would be wrong um no reflection i'm so on board with no reflection just reflection is just such a recipe for 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 uh production runtime bugs that you know things happen in a effect, different way. right?
2: so it's like you know instead of programming in java i want to program in a combination of annotations and xml and then that's enabled by reflection
0: yeah yeah
2: but then when things go wrong uh yeah it,
0: how do you know where why yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like
2: programming in php again
0: yeah what's interesting is on the on the spring side of things they're now uh Focusing a lot on doing ahead of time compilation to get rid of reflection, <laughs> okay. And it's like God, even even yeah. the spring the spring folks are trying to move away from reflection.
1: So let me ask a question. So you you built this on top of the JVM, which mm-hmm. would I would think make the process of creating a new language way easier because then you don't have to worry about all the stuff that the jvm does but one thing that's been occurring to me is that the jvm was built for java and java constraints is it is it time for us as a you know the programming world to build a new vm that isn't just for Java, you know, it's like, especially when we're talking about functional programming, it seems like if we had a VM that worked also. Yes, you know.
2: please. I, I'm glad you okay. asked this question. It's been time for 10 years, right? Yeah. So, you know, where, where are my tail calls, right? Where are my continuation support? Yeah. You know, well,
1: um, or, or immutability, you know. The,
2: immutability, th- all these things, right? You yeah. know, even ownership, for example. Mm-hmm. The VM knew about that. There are things that could be done, perhaps. And yeah, it's it's you know it's like ten years over time. There's WebAssembly, but WebAssembly as of today, right, doesn't have tail calls. The garbage collection story is also a work in progress. I don't I know what the status. Mention,
0: is. I was going to mention WebAssembly as being one of the possible yes. places where this could happen, yes. but there's still quite a few gaps there. That um, like uh, they're they're still working out the ability to do uh, to talk from. WebAssembly, Wasm, to JavaScript. Like, the interop yeah. there is not quite there. Like, doing a garbage collector, like, is still a work in progress. There's a number of places that Wasm, I think, is is still has a, a long ways to go. But maybe the thing that in five years or so that we could, we could actually... I think there's really space
2: this. for a new uh, virtual machine. I mean, I don't know it's... who would pay to develop it, because I think, you know, it's a huge undertaking. But certainly... Many also of the ideas that are coming up in newer programming languages really do need some kind of better runtime support, and they have to emulate it today at performance costs.
1: Well, and I guess, wasn't LLVM originally intended to be that new virtual machine? Yes, yes. Okay, and it just became a high-level assembly yeah. language yeah. for the um you you mentioned tail call elimination and I, that confused me a little bit because you made a big deal about it on your webpage by the way we right. should tell everybody flicks.dev if you want to kind of go follow along call, while yeah. we're talking about this um, i mean scala and kotlin both provide tail call elimination don't they
2: that's the playground version of the toy version so we need to distinguish between two things right so uh, and it can actually be shown with a simple example. So a function that calls itself recursively, tail call yes. position. Uh, you know, Scala and many languages can deal with this, and that's that's fine. But for serious programming, you want the ability to tail call a different function, and the stack <sighs> shouldn't grow. So a toy example is if you write a function even and a function odd, and then they tail call each other. Right. So so the stack looks like odd even odd. So even, even with odd,
0: even with two functions. And you, then that, you can't you can't do the tail call elimination. Yeah.
1: so this is like the many body problem in physics.
2: <laughs> yeah, possibly, I don't know. So so in those languages that doesn't get uh, you know they don't do anything about that. So you blow the stack. And that's also uh, why in Scala some of the functional libraries have sort of explicit functions like there is the Scala Cats library maybe you've heard about yeah. where you have to sort of really care about not blowing the stack. And so in mm. Flix, the way we deal with that is that we we pay a cost. So we have to emulate calls with trampolines. And so that just makes us a few factors slower. Huh. Um, but on the but other hand, you can't get a stack overflow error if your call is in tail position.
1: Huh. Okay. And do you That's have good. to, I mean, like I know with Kotlin, you have to use a keyword tail wreck to to tell it to... Eliminate No, that would
2: calls. be, uh, oh, I should be careful, but that would be ugly, right? Then, then well, we it have is. To, you,
1: <laughs> you really have to think about it
0: when like you're writing. like the compiler should know, right? The compiler yeah, should.
2: The, yeah, the compiler should know, right? I mean, uh, maybe there could be an annotation just to, you know, if, if you have this intention, you could express that intention and have it checked. Mm-hmm. But if it's a tail call mm-hmm. in Flix, it's a tail call, and then, then, then that's it, right?
1: And and so you never have to tell it. You just, it just no, does no. It. yeah. Uh, it. Well, that does sound nice. But to do that, you have to constrain something in the language.
2: Now, I don't have to constrain anything, but I have to pay a runtime performance oh. cost because I can't use okay. just a Java stack. I have to uh, do some emulation of the stack myself.
1: So could Scala and Kotlin do that if they... Yeah. okay they're willing to. But they,
2: it's probably a slowdown of like two or three X. So that's okay. probably unacceptable to these languages.
0: I see. Um, but, you know... But one of your values is is to value. uh, Let's see. Let's find it. Correctness Um, correctness over performance. So, back to those. You know, do you want your program to
2: crash when someone puts too many items in the shopping list,
1: (laughs) or I don't know whatever, right? Right. Yeah,
0: whatever would make maybe cause a stack overflow
1: yeah and it's like w- one of the things that i you're way too young to remember this but you may have come across the concept of the software crisis which started mm. the idea started happening in the 60s and 70s and when i was initially coming on that was the big deal it's like oh we have the software crisis and the deal was that we need to be able to create programs faster and they paid lip service to reliability of course because Otherwise, you create programs quickly that are broken. But in the end, it was more about the business need for more software faster, and not the reliability. We we compromised on that, and I think I think when you have your um, maxim that no reliability is the most important thing it's like of course it is
2: yeah i think so but, true it's just so annoying when software isn't reliable i mean yeah, every day right of, kind of you turn it's on every, the oven or something and
1: it doesn't work everywhere and this is the foundation of our book which is like uh you know creating reliable software is job one not just creating software quickly yeah.
2: so everyone can write a fast algorithms when they're wrong
0: that's mm-hmm. <laughs> right can be highly productive at creating software that is terribly buggy. And yeah. we are. Yeah. 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 We are. Um, there's some other great principles here. legal state should be unrepresentable. That's something that is... is, uh, That's
2: something to aspire to, right? It's difficult. I see this. This It's marked as in progress. So yeah,
0: yeah, why is that one in progress?
2: Uh, So that's because um, I think it gives an example that Ada has, I think, where instead of having integers, you just say, well, this is an H, and an H, you know, a person is between zero and 150 years old. So instead of just using 32-bit integers everywhere, you try to be more precise, uh-huh. and so I think we also wanted to have some
0: of that stuff. I see. Yep. And this is like the um oh what's the 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 word for that I'm thinking of. Uh being able to constrain your your data types to yeah. to a given yeah. set of values yeah. and, and validate. There's something called refinement time. types
2: refinement that goes types, yeah. in this direction. We don't yeah. have it, but but that's something we're interested in too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nice. So, yeah, I just maybe one
2: comment it. about the type inference, right? So we talked about yes. it a little bit before, but also going back to this thing with, um, you know, now maybe the pendulum has to swing in the other direction towards, um, you know, maintainability and, you know, qu- you know, quality. But on the other hand, you know, you know, the, you know the JavaScript fl- framework, de right? It's like, you know, that's upvoted on Hacker News. And so it's hard to see, right? All this good research being done on type systems and so on, all these ideas, and, you know, we are moving in the other direction, right? We were moving towards Java for some time, which had the type system, and now we are moving away from it. Uh-huh. And so also a design goal of Flix, which is perhaps not explicitly stated, but is that we need to get the type systems back. But clearly they have to have type inference. Yeah, we really have to be focused on the type inference so we can make the argument to, to you know, JavaScript programmers or, and so on that you know, you don't have to type anything extra or very, very little. And then you get a lot of guarantees for free and refactoring and all these things you can do. This is where
0: text. I, when I see you participate in debates around type systems the people that are against them are usually against java type systems like yeah. they they haven't experienced a type system with type inference and yeah. and i think that that's a huge thing that will open up the doors for a lot of people back into the world of type systems is type inference good type inference
1: i think my problem with them in the past has been that you do a lot of work and you don't get that much of a benefit whereas when you have a good type system and it really solves a lot of problems for you you go oh well obviously that's great and i think whereas the java type system was like not are you that, serving I mean, the
0: type system or is it serving you
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah. it's kind of like semicolons what are they for they're for the compiler right they're not right. for the programmer
0: um, oh does I uh, was flix the language I looked at recently that did have semicolons? Like required so we have
1: sem- semicolons
2: because there is an ambiguity issue I don't know how to resolve. And there is these uh, JavaScript memes and, and other things that also show it where if you have full semicolon inference, it's possible to write programs that their meaning changes if you insert a line break, for example. Huh. And, and you know inserting a line break and changing the meaning seems really dangerous. Also think about reviewing a pull request and these kinds of things. Because yeah. then you basically have a form of significant white space, too, certainly. Right. So, so yeah. So, Flix has uh, semicolons. I think we can drop them in certain places. Uh, so, I think a long-term goal will be to try to do that. But I will not want to do it at the cost of uh, you know, introducing these puzzlers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah,
1: because in your examples, I don't. I see them someplace but not well everywhere. they separate
2: statements right so you want to have two print statements you need them you need them after let binding, and that's
1: pretty much it uh-huh and then is there some place where you're using periods
2: yeah that's in the logic fragment only oh
0: i okay. want to get into the oh, to the data, data, data log stuff okay. but before we get there a couple more principles uh no warnings only errors it's I love that. It's like yeah.
2: Because what about the warnings? Then the, you know, I you know, also educate to ignore, uh, and, and then they are ignored or they're confusing or some mm-hmm. people consider warnings to be errors, or some of the warnings are errors, or so I think the nice thing about this principle, and this is something Go actually got right. I think they also only have errors, is that it means the language designer has to really put their foot down and say, This is not okay. Or, alternatively, this is like totally okay. Not some, are we're a little bit concerned about it. So maybe mm-hmm. you just say something.
1: Right? Yeah, warnings yeah. are confusing.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. You um, don't know what to do about them. Is uh, this important? Scala, or I'm it... sure that you have your Scala code base for the compiler set to make all warnings yes, and errors. Just, and that's yes, that's yes. A, the build system, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a key thing, I think, for, I, I don't know. I can't think of like a real Scala project that shouldn't have that enabled. And I, I actually, in Kotlin, you can do the same thing. So I've done that in my Kotlin project. So, uh, What's that sad came is up... it's not the defaults in Kotlin and Scala. Right. Just, right.
2: just make it the default. Someone was saying then, what about uh, deprecation uh, warnings? Are they warnings huh. or errors? So, So, you know, it shows that things are not as clear cut. So I had to introduce sort of a mental category called, what do we call them? Like code hints. Using the Visual Studio Code
0: uh-huh.
2: terminology, mm. so a deprecation thing is a is a code hint, right? So some it's some meta error, information a... about the program. It's not an error to call a function that's scheduled for removal, and it's not a warning because we don't have warnings. Right.
0: <laughs> so, it's just is it, a it's, it's it, just a heads up. It's like hey, yeah. heads up, this thing is going to go it's, away.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, it's just a yeah a deprecation it's an IDE tip, right? It
2: shows up yeah. in uh, the IDE. Yeah. yeah,
1: maybe it's just a completely different category. Yeah, I think why, so. Why should there only be two categories?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs>
0: um, exhaustive pattern matching, ADT is like so much good stuff in here that I've, I've just become the standard way that I build software now. Um, expression oriented, that relates to kind of the semicolon topic a little bit, and um, yeah, I mean, again, like there's just so much stuff in here. I'm like, like. Modern languages that aren't expression oriented, it's like, what are you even doing? You know, it's just like, that's yeah. just the way things should be. Yeah, once um, you
1: see it, it's hard. You can't unsee it. And then where <laughs> you look, you're going, why? <laughs> what didn't you know about this when yes. you were designing the language? Why?
0: Uh, and it no, also, I, was, hmm. I, I was, I was, I'd never heard the term very variatic. I think for args that mm-hmm. kind of variadic argument list, but I, but I liked your your um, thing there. It says like it it's not clear how you could uh, have a language that supports both currying and variadic functions cleanly. And I was like, absolutely, that like yeah, like, that was never resolved. So yeah, let's just not have Vargs. And the yeah. if you have a concise syntax for constructing a list, then you don't need it anyway. So yeah, mm-hmm. that was yeah. Good. The no yeah, I... labeled function arguments. That one was interesting, um, and it's something I've actually talked to John De about a bit. Like, like design wise, could you could you do that? And um, yeah, I think that's one that I'm gonna have to like play with and see, like, like how how that all feels. So what does reality. it say?
2: Because I think. Uh... Yeah, so it doesn't uh, Flix have does them, not support
0: right? labeled function arguments. The motivation yeah. for labeled arguments is uh, reasonable to avoid calling a function with arguments of the same type, but in the wrong order. Unfortunately, labeled function arguments do not work in the presence of higher order functions. Mm-hmm. Instead, we suggest to overcome the problem by either using richer types, uh, like using Celsius instead of int, or alternatively using record types, which can be right. used to emulate the same functionality and works with higher order functions. So, so yeah, so there's a new to... principle
2: uh, you can be the first to hear Ooh. about it. Ooh, so, we right. so so the, okay, so let's break it down. So first of all, the label thing in many languages is sort of something that's bolded on. So it only works for like top level things. And sometimes they're extremely complicated rules. So is it Python where you have like, labeled arguments and var and, and arcs and you can also put a comma in between and then some has to be positional and some has to be labeled
1: well and it has default arguments too oh, so it allows arg- you right. to have a lot of arguments right. and they all have defaults and then you only have to say the one that you want to change you could do right. This in right so you could have too, like a phd like... in the
2: <laughs> in, in the arguments for functions uh, yeah. So what we wanted to do, that this principle already captures, is that you can use a record, right? And then you know, a smart compiler, uh, hopefully we don't do it yet, but you know, nothing prevents us from optimizing that away. Um, so, but one thing we started doing uh, recently, in refactors in entire standard library, is that if there are functions in the standard library where you could swap the order of arguments, so uh, for example, a string replace is a good example. It takes right. two strings, right? But which one is the substring and which one is the target? Yep. So the first argument, last argument, and especially if you're learning a language, like which, yeah. which one is it? Now the thing is with label arguments is that then that resolves it because you write out the the label. That's fine. Now we can use two records, and then we force you to write out the labels also. So then it's good because you can um, you can actually you can see it, right?
0: right? It's just another way to do labeled arguments. Yes. But, yes. But then there's some verbosity that you get. Yes in exchange for that. So it's like positional gives us a more concise syntax, but then there's some implicit order that you have to yes. understand.
2: Yes, but two, so, okay. two twists on this thing. So yeah. the first is that um, label arguments can't force the caller to write out the arguments, but but using records as we do forces the caller to write it out, which means that when you implement string replace, we have decided that everyone who calls this must write the arguments out. So now we know throughout the entire code base uh, that that the labels will be there, right? Because you have to write them. Yeah, that's one thing. So
0: you, so you, as a as a API designer for a library, yeah. you get to decide when the user yes. has must to, use what must is use labeled arguments, kind
2: of quote unquote so, a labeled argument. Yeah. The second thing is that we introduce sense. syntactic sugar. Like, sh-
0: so the 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 person designing the writing the function. They're going to know that there's going to be some ambiguity with yes, the usage yes, of their function, yes. and so they're saying, "There, I know that there is ambiguity here. You must now label these things." Yes, and that, like so them.
2: now we know that all the callers will spell it out. The yeah. Second thing, we have syntactic sugar that just allows you in a call to write, you know, substring equal a string, and then that becomes a record, and there's no ambiguity issue here. So it looks like a actually a call. Yeah. But huh. now it works because it's part of the type system. It's a record. So it works with you know first class functions and all these things. Yeah. The last strange thing, and this is unique to reflex. So, so you know, using records for this, all languages have played with that, is that um if you take string replace and you remake both into records, then it doesn't work with pipelines anymore. So let's say you wanted to say, like, you know, have a list and you do a map, and you say like want to replace, you know, yeah. So Actually, what we do is that we only require the first arguments to be records, and then the last argument says stays as a string. Huh.
1: huh.
2: So this way you have to, the signature is something like a record called, what is it? substring, and then a yeah. record called replacement or whatever, I forget, and then the string argument itself.
0: Yeah. Huh. Uh,
2: so you have to see it a little bit in front of you. Yeah. But, uh, this means that you cannot swap the order because one is a record and one is a string. Those are right. not type compatible, yeah. but it still works with pipelines. Huh.
0: Yeah, I think this is one place of, of flex that I really need to play with. And it sounds yeah. like you've tackled some of the challenges with the trade offs between ordering and labeling.
2: <laughs> so now so, claim you cannot mess up the order of any uh, function in the standard library. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's
1: awesome. So, two kind of basic questions um, Is it ready for prime time? And what's the Java interoperability uh, story?
2: Yeah, good questions. Uh, I think as of sort of summer last year, uh, it's ready to be used for, you know, seriously, like uh, we have a lot of tests. You know, there's the website, there's the documentation, there's I- API documentation like Javadoc, there's a Visual Studio Code plugin. And the nice thing about the Visual Studio Code plugin, by the way, is that it uses the real compiler. So I've been experimenting nice. with all yeah. languages where there seems to be this, I'm not sure exactly why, maybe it's engineering issues, but... You know, there's the real compiler and then there's the plugin and sometimes they don't agree. And Mm -hmm. this can be really annoying. Mm -hmm. Really annoying. Yeah. Now, of course there's some limitations, but uh, you know, uh, how well does it work with programs that, you know, syntax errors and so on. But if you get like a type error, you will always get a type error by running the real compiler because it's the same code base. You never
0: have an ambiguity between red squigglies in your IDE and the reality of the compiler.
2: Those yeah. things are always the same. So I think that's very good. Yeah. And we are using it ourselves. I know of one industry user. Um, they wish to say anonymous, but they're <laughs> using it for some data analytics. Huh. Um, so, yeah, I think people should uh, you know, try it out. And they have been. Uh, and nice. they don't seem to run into to errors. Uh, I think they lose interest, unfortunately, maybe before they crash the compiler. But I think that's a sign of quality also. <laughs>
0: nice. Okay, and then Java Interop.
2: Ah, Java interrupt. yeah. So that would be the reason it's not ready for prior time, perhaps. Right. <laughs> so the the tricky thing here is that, you know, first of all, there's Scala, which is an excellent language for Java Interop and some functional programming. And so you should really use that if, if Java interrupt is really important. Now, what we can do is that we can call out to Java code, and that means, you know, if you want to reuse the file API and so on, you can get away with it. Now, what becomes tricky is that what if you have to extend some Java class but you can't do that because we don't have classes. So then you might <laughs> write a little bit of Java code for interop. Uh-huh. But, I mean, you can, you know, you can bundle jars and you can, you can access them and you just write the methods like you would call them and they become sort of flick signatures.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm sure like, really with, with some of your principles, there's is- there some challenges with interop because, uh, like nullability like how do you know like essentially you just have to assume that everything in java is nullable so yeah Yeah. so that gets uh so then you wrap it all in option or whatever and then similarly with um with purity it's like how do you know if if something is pure or not on the java side you don't so you just have to assume that
2: everything is impure yes so there right uh in java uh, sorry in scala the interop is extremely good i would say right it just it's, it's, it's really the same language in some sense. Yeah. And in Flix, it's not that like that. In Flix, it's more like you import things. And when you import a Java method that you would like to call, you say, well, it's pure or not.
0: Oh, okay. You, you so deal the, with whether I can side, return null or not. You, you tell the user. Yeah. So gonna...
2: you, you have to annotate that information. But if you do that correctly, then you have all the guarantees.
0: Cool. Okay, so now I want to go into data log stuff. Because this, Bruce and I, when we fr- first started looking at a Flix, we had to, I had to look up what the data log stuff is because it was a totally new concept to me. So give us the rundown on, on the data log piece. And, yeah. then assume so, I know nothing, because I know
2: nothing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so data log is a, is a logic programming language, uh, which means that you write constraints. And then when you run a data log program, uh, you know, the compiler and runtime somehow solves these constraints and give you a solution. Now, what are these kinds of constraints? Uh, they are closest to SQL, I think. You can almost think of them as SQL, but with recursion. So in SQL, huh. it's like you know you have some tables and you join them. So you join like the user table with the post table, and then you filter a little bit, and then you get a result table out. Now, in data log, you also write queries like this, which is a little bit different. And But then you can sort of take the result, which is a table, and you could insert those rows into another table. And then you can iterate this process. And so the recursion means that you know for example if you wanted to find like is there a path from i don't know uh, rome to paris you have a graph then you can write a two-line data log program that will uh, you know discover such a path or enumerate such a path so that's data log in isolation i have a few more things about data log so so one is that any data log program like like most sql queries if you behave nice uh, terminate so you, know, you can't really, you always get a result, right? It's nice uh-huh. if you write simple SQL queries. It's always a result for you. Maybe not the one you want, but you always get something to look at. Um, there are efficient techniques to solve these things. So as a query language, really good. You can do it in parallel, all kinds of things. Um, okay, fine. So then you could say, well, we should all program in DataLog, data log. And uh, maybe at some point that's what people thought, but it turns out that, you know, Programming is not really just curating some tables. I mean, we're not writing all our programs in SQL. We need the ability to express other things. Okay, so then the story sort of before Flix, you could say, was, well, I write my Java program, let's say a Scala program. Then I write a a, a Datalog program that I generate as a string. That's also how we use SQL today in in some places. Send the string
0: over to the database and let it deal with it.
2: Send it over get the result back and then you need to process the result the types and so on yeah and then you know that's how it works so flix then what it does is that it just has this data log language embedded in it tied to its type system so you can certainly say okay now i want to implement a function uh say you know can i go from i don't know paris to rome so i'm going to write a little logic program here and then i'm going to solve it Maybe you only want a Boolean out, maybe you want the path out, I don't know. Then you extract that with a query mechanism, a li- little bit like link. Huh, yeah. so right? The logic fragment, and then you have something like link to extract the things you care about. And then that could be the implementation of a function. And seen from the outside, you wouldn't know that.
1: So That's how similar story. is Datalog to like Prolog?
2: Yeah, uh, so uh, both are logic programming languages, and syntactically, they look the same. Oh. So it's a bit like, you know, like scheme and racket and these languages look the same, but they are very different in the sense that prologue is an almost imperative language because in prologue, order of statements matter. There are concerns about backtracking. You can write programs that loop. So the data log is the more friendly version that can't compute everything. Um, but on the other hand, it's much more, uh, you don't have to worry too much about how you write your programs. The order of your constraints does not matter. It's just a bunch of constraints.
1: And they do in Prolog. The order matters.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because Prolog, okay. Prolog is searching through a space possibly infinite, and so it's important to go through the rules in a certain order and, and things like this for efficiency. Uh, well, also you just you just have to because if you swap two rules, it could change the meaning of the program. Oh. But that's not the case in DataLog.
1: I see. Well, so I never could understand ProLog. I <laughs> back when back when we were having the AI revolution in the '90s, right? I uh, couldn't. It couldn't wrap my head around it. So maybe I could actually understand DataLog. <laughs> I, th-
2: I think DataLog is a very nice place to start because I think you get a lot of the power, even though ProLog can do more, right? So ProLog can express
1: any computation.
2: That's not true for DataLog or for plain uh-huh. SQL. Right. And and, but Flix is also really saying, I think, that your logic programming is a niche, and it's probably not going to take over programming. But it's a niche that could be very useful for certain things, again, like your database, query language.
1: It's sort of and like so a domain-specific language yeah, then? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for,
0: yeah. for logic or queries... So you can express like everything you can do in logic. SQL,
1: right? But
2: more, because you can do this recursion also. So, so
1: I is think the that idea that you wouldn't ever have to use SQL? You would just do everything through data log?
2: That's a good question. Um, so, so it really depends on what you're doing, right? Because SQL is usually because you care about storing your data in a database so you can retrieve it later and asset properties and all these things. Hmm. But if for some reason you just wanted to do a computation, like load in a big social network graph, compute whatever you compute <laughs> on a social network graph. Yeah, then you can do it just in plain data log.
0: So I think the, maybe the where this is starting to click for me is I um, I really don't like SQL because like you're saying, when I do SQL in a program, I've got just this string blob that is totally disconnected from my type system, yeah. from any uh, program verification, Verification validation that I'm able to do in my type language, you know, I'm just shipping a string over to the database and it, it just seems like a place where things can go terribly wrong. And then I have to map the results back and that yes. mapping things can go wrong. And so what I have, have used a lot more is um, Quill. You may be familiar with Quill. We had the, one of the, the maintainers of it on an episode a while back, but it's this—it's this, it's this um, language in Scala or a, I don't know, a tool in Scala that you write monadic transforms like you would in Spark mm. on mm-hmm. uh, on data, and then it creates the SQL for you that then gets sent over to the database. But then it can manage the mapping and all that stuff for you, so it, it allows you to write in a in the type language in uh the the queries um and and so i like that part of it but i think for most people they don't want to write like monadic scala transforms to to create their queries and that if they could use (laughs) yeah if they could use a dsl in their language and have not have those impedance mismatches and not be shipping strings then this would allow you to to have people that can focus more on the query side yes. and other people that focus more on the application logic side. And it's or really
2: more than a DSL, right? Because uh, when I work with a DSL in any language, then, you know, let's say it's Java, Scala, then it's a, a library, right? That had to work with, you know, the constraints of Scala, which can, you know, right. admittedly be good, right? But still, you know, error mix and so on. This yeah. is part of the language. So it's integrated into the type system itself. It's integrated into lexical scope, Huh. These things are values and so on. It works with inference, full inference. So you can never have a type error unless, you know, actually you're trying to do something huh. that's nonsensical. Yeah. So you should, the experience should be much better. That's the hope at least.
1: Huh. Yeah, there's a maxim in the uh, Zen of Python that says, practicality beats purity every time. <laughs> not That's not the kind of purity you're talking about. <laughs> right. right. Pure uh-huh. keyword. It's just, you know... Um, so I have a question about like what wouldn't you use Flix for? What What, what is Flix an inappropriate language to solve?
2: Yeah, I guess there are two things, right? So what would be inappropriate for today and what would be inappropriate sort of long-term, right? Uh, but I think, you know, um, let's say you want to do web programming on the front end. I don't think we have any story for that. Uh, let's say you want to write a UI using Swing or something. I don't think there's anything for that. Um but if you want to write, you know, server applications, data processing, these kinds of things, I think that that would, would be good for. Mm-hmm. If you want to write an Android application, I don't know if that could work because I don't know if the bytecode we so is compatible. <laughs> if you have heavy dependencies on, you know, you talked about spring, right, relying on reflection, that's probably a bad match. <laughs> but if you're writing a microservice, um well, we don't have a web server yet but you know someone could quickly <laughs> write one or maybe reuse one from Java that has a nice api uh-huh. yeah you can do it
0: okay. what um what was the motivation with the data log piece what?
2: that came out of pure research i think that's huh. where we started so it was data log is you know it's in our view right really more powerful than sql it's much more elegant um, and we were using data log for some program analysis and these kinds of things but but we were also using it in the string way, you know, one program that wraps another program by manipulating strings. This is very unsatisfactory. Yeah. So we wanted to embed it in a functional language so that we can write functional code. That's what we like to do. I think in Flix you would you would want to use it if you want to write I don't know 80% functional code, then you know 5% 2% data log where it's useful you take it out and then some impure code around the edges because you have to suck in a file. You do your functional thing, then there are some side effects you write it back to a file and so it requests over with the network or so on
0: yeah it's it seemed like link really really charted some uncharted territory in this mm-hmm. in this realm, but you don't really hear much about link anymore and mm-hmm. and i I don't know exactly why that like didn't catch on more but but i'm I'm very fascinated in this idea of like query embedded query language, which I know that's yeah. not all the yeah. that's not the full picture of what you can do here, but but getting us away from embedding strings for our queries <laughs> <laughs> seems like a huge step forward. So that's cool. I wanna I wanna play with that now with especially that query piece and it'd be fun. But huh, what else, Bruce?
1: Um well what about what's your I mean you you're in academia. And do you teach classes? Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at this language versus what we're doing with um, Scala and ZIO, where I'm finding the learning curve to be really significant. And then I'm looking at your language, where it's like you just kind of lay everything out. And I'm thinking, huh, I wonder if this wouldn't be a good language for someone to learn what functional programming is? Yeah, I think
2: thoughts? so. No, I really think so. And if I had, you know, the the power, or maybe the guts, I would also do that. Sometimes, you know, we have the discussion and say, like, how would we explain this feature to a really good first year student? Hmm. Right. You know, th- this is like the level. Uh, there was also this principle of a layered language, right? So, um, what was it we were joking about the other day, right? So you have a, like a list of integers, and you want to sum it, compute the sum of the elements. Well, so, you know, you could say like, oh, you know, I have like a monoid or the integers, right? And then I can like <laughs> fold it with, you know, so that works. And you can actually do that in Flix. But even though we have like functor and traversable and all these, we also have a list namespace. And in the list namespace, you will find something called sum. And the signature of list that sum says, give me a list of int 32s. I give you an int 32 back. There's also a list map that says, you know, give me a function from A to B. Well, with effect EF because this language tracks effects. Then I give you back a list B, right? So actually, you know, in that way we try to layer the language by saying there are these type classes, but you can actually you don't have to know about them from the beginning. If you just want to work with a list, you can do that. And and then then that machinery is kind of hidden from you. There are a few things that can never be hidden, but I think you you would also recognize that it can't be. So equality, for example. So this quality is something you need to talk about if you have a set, right? Hmm. You need to have some notion of equality. Yeah. But I think most people can deal with that.
0: And Do you, you use can about traversable like strict, e- strict equality, um, like a type type class-based equality?
2: Yeah, so there's a type oh, class nice. called EQ, and uh, you can get Love it that. derived for free, or you can implement it yourself.
1: Wonderful that sounds yeah i i mean i think that that's one of the reasons that python is so accessible is because you can do very sophisticated things with it but if you want to just introduce well like you know hello world you say print hello world yeah and boom you're done and that I, I think that's one of the problems that I've been having with functional languages is they go well, you know. First, you need to understand funct- functors and monoids and monads, and it's like, but I don't know why,
0: right? I don't, <laughs> right. Know, you know. Yeah. And
1: it's like, how do I, and or even oh, the number of times that I've, you know, encountered tutorials that say, well, first we're going to understand recursion, and it's like, right. I why and and yeah. now i finally understand it after you know seeing these things for decades and i go oh i see why but you shouldn't have to know that to to get started but the people who are creating these languages are so smart that they can't imagine somebody not understanding right. these concepts mm-hmm. it's you know the curse of knowledge squared <laughs> Yes, yeah. I see what you mean. I think it's a it's a good point. Yeah, and I
2: think we've tried to avoid that a little bit by having this layered approach. Mm-hmm. Um, one other principle I could mention was um, this was something also that came to me just as an idea. So we have like a type error in in a specific case. We get this type error, and then it says like something. You know, it's hard to understand, right? Like ah, oh, this signature is not this is more general than this signature, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then it occurred to me, well, we can actually pattern match on the error in the compiler and say, well, actually you have a pure function, but you declared it as impure. And so sometimes now we have like a list, uh, sorry, we have several error messages where we try to pick a more specific one. You could say there was no need to do this because we already have an error message that explains everything. But we sort of split up the error messages. So there is still a general one when we simply don't know what it's wrong. And it says something scary like this type cannot be generalized to this type. And then it gives some information. But if it's one of the more simpler errors, it will say, well, this function, you know, you said it was impure, but it's actually pure. That 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 doesn't. Uh-huh. That's the problem.
0: Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Kind of layering the error messages and so giving also layering the user the, error the most message. specific. So even there was, yeah. Most specific one, yeah. So try to
2: generate more specific ones when we can.
0: Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I I love it, and I and Bruce, we definitely need to do a little hackathon. Encourage to at sometime with Flex. It's going to be, gonna be <laughs> fun yeah. to to explore for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm intrigued. Yeah, there's just a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, I want to end with your FAQ. It is the best programming language FAQ ever and I was laughing out loud many times reading it so um, <laughs> there's just like, as an example I was disappointed to learn that Flix has feature X instead of my favorite feature Y and your your answer to that one is we are deeply sorry to have let you down <laughs> uh, I like this one this is by far the worst syntax I've ever seen in a functional language semicolons, braces, symbolic soup <laughs> at all. Uh, it is like if, if Scala, Java, and Haskell had a one-night stand in the center of Chernobyl, <laughs> then your answer, quite an achievement, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Just love it.
1: Yeah, yeah. At some point, you have to say, yeah, this is what we do. And, and again, going back to Python, Python's philosophy has always been Hey, we're not trying to get you to use our language. If if right. it doesn't work for you, to use something else, yeah. And it never expected to be the number one programming language in the world. Yeah. that wasn't their goal. Their yeah, goal just was do just... their own
2: thing. I can respect that. Yeah, I think that's oh, a good. Yeah.
1: And <laughs> and I and I love that. It's like, uh, I guess at first arguing about programming languages and features when you're younger, that is pretty exciting but at some point it you get to the good. place where you go I hey, i've done this it's a huge waste of time um it's like yeah i i, I really appreciate the um the, the just going yeah yeah sorry sorry that doesn't work for you um <laughs> sorry Come
0: back okay with you, with that. That.
1: you should use something else yeah absolutely yeah. you should use something else if it doesn't yeah. work for you
0: Uh, Do you ever imagine having the the Flix compiler written in Flix?
2: Yes. That's a question everyone asks. Someday, yeah. It's not a priority, but sure, someday we we should definitely do it.
0: We talked to
1: Richard Feldman, yeah.
0: Yeah. We talked to Richard Feldman, who's building this language called Rock, and he made it very clear they do not intend for Rock to be self hosted. And we went into that, and it was fascinating uh, that he just doesn't intend.
1: Was it Rust?
0: Rust, yeah, the compiler for yeah. rock is written in Rust. Which I and think it's I don't, like, it's too I don't intend rock I mean, to be a good language for compilers. We're like, I see, okay, yeah. can respect that. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. No, I have
2: it... uh, one question for you here at the end. Yeah. So uh, you know, what do you think it takes for a language to be successful? Or you know, what would you do if you were designing a language? Oh, that's it, a good question. A lot successful. of the
1: things that you've done, I would say. But I, one of the things, I mean, I resisted Rust for a long time. I'm, I don't. You know, I've never written a Rust program, but we investigated it during one of these developer retreats. And one of the things that we came across was the Rust documentation slash Rust book is amazingly good,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: just puts all other documentation to shame. And it's like, wow. I mean, because that's it, the onboarding process. You know, it, mm-hmm. you and. Well, to give a little background, one of the things that happens at the Python conference is they have a few hackathon days afterwards. And when I first started doing it, I just would go into a project that I knew nothing about. And I would say, OK, I'll work on your onboarding process. You know, what What do people mm-hmm, what, And the developers were like all universally like thrilled because um, they don't want to do that. And I kind of think that to make a language really successful, you really do have to think a lot about the onboarding process and what I mean. One of the arguments that I'm (laughs) kind of in the middle of with the Zio people is if I don't know if you've looked at Zio, but I have. But you have okay. But I need to
2: learn more. Yeah, and how (laughs) the
1: arguments, the 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 type parameters for the Zio object are random letters. And you're oh, yeah. supposed to mentally map those to what they really are. And I'm arguing, don't do that because you're adding cognitive load. But it doesn't make sense to them because they're so used to it right. that they just go, oh, well, just learn the random letters and use those. <laughs> and and it's, it's driving me nuts. So, um, So, you know, and it's all those little details to say, I guess maybe the thing is, if you start teaching it in, mm-hmm. and you, because when I was teaching both C++ and Java, I would go, oh, right, I've, I've done a really good job here in the explanation. And then I'd get up and I'd start teaching it, and I'd see these blank stares. And you can't argue with the blank stares. People
2: yeah. do, yeah.
1: but you can't. And then you yeah. go, oh, I need to rewrite that. And so that process of going over and over again trying it again to develop your, you know, whatever your onboarding process is and exposing it and testing it. And like, I'd say that would probably be uh, the biggest thing, especially these days, because you can't really force a language on people. You have to attract people to your language. Hmm. So that's that would be my thing.
0: Yeah, Onboarding. Yeah, that's great. I think so many people do a really horrible job of onboarding. Because so that's not the interesting
1: part to them. Yeah. And you have to actually be interested in bringing users, you know, what, what is the experience of somebody encountering my language for the first time? And I think you've done a good job, like, with your web pages. Um, but the actual tutorial process of learning the language is
0: mm-hmm. something that
1: needs a lot of attention, and it takes a lot of work.
0: Yeah. Yep. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me the thing I think about with this is you—you um, you have to in some way be able to get people from where they are to where you are, and one of the ways to do that is interoperability, and you can see how how yep. Scala and Kotlin have gone that route. And I think that the the challenge with that with interoperability is that it imposes a lot of constraints on what you can do. And so if you really want to change things and make things better, then it's just a trade-off where you no longer have that like smooth bridge that people can walk on to get incrementally from where they are to to you. And so what can you do? What can you do to to cre- create a bridge from where people are to where they, to, to you make that as smooth as possible. And I think maybe like Bruce is saying, onboarding is, is a big part of that, or I don't know whether other things would make sense for, for Flix in that case, but, um, but I think that's going to be one of your challenges. And, and, and I think part of it is that maybe you get some um, quicker success with better interoperability, but if you look, if you're looking at Flicks 20 years from now, that interoperability may not be in the long run as valuable.
1: We're right. Look at C++. Its success came from backwards compatibility with C, uh, but yes, its that's true. burden, its <laughs> albatross, is backwards compatible People go, "Oh, it was terribly designed," and it's like, "No, it wasn't. It was designed for backwards compatibility yes. so people could adopt it. But now, it looks like a terrible design." And so, yeah, you don't want to compromise that, you know, you got to have your big vision of what you want it to do. And if uh, interoperability is going to corrupt your language, I wouldn't do it. Uh, Oh, so there is one thing that I've noticed now with, you know, YouTube, anybody can create a video, and they can think that they're being very clear. Because they don't have that immediate feedback of doing it in front of an audience. Ah, yes. So I think, and and I mean, unfortunately, I see this in the Zio community a lot. You know, it's like, well, obviously you understand this and this and this. It's like there's no feedback, no, no blank stares to, to find out that no, your audience doesn't understand it. And so, but again, you're in a position where you could
2: Yeah. And in fact, we use it a little bit for like, um, there's an elective course where they learn Mm -hmm. the data log part. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's where I've been. And then, you know, also when they see error messages and you're like, oh, this is really, it's humbling, actually. It's Mm -hmm. humbling because you see the kind of issues you need to think about.
1: Exactly. It's um, <laughs> it, and the humbling is like, oh, this isn't fun. I, I mean, for me, it's like, oh, I've I've done something wrong, and it's like <laughs> I have to go through a whole emotional cycle mm-hmm. with that. But then when you come back and you go, oh, it's so much better now than it, you know, compensates. But it can that. also
2: be amazing at the end because yes. you know, then they have written some programs by
1: mm-hmm. themselves. Yes,
2: and then they think nothing of it. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I did that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so having your having your feet on the ground, direct contact with the people who are trying to absorb this material. I mean, even in even in workshops where that's happened, I've seen people um, kind of ignore the feedback from the audience and say, oh, well, this is obvious. And and the audience is like, well, I have to nod because I mean, otherwise I'll look stupid. And so you have to make it okay to not understand things otherwise yeah. you won't get the feedback
0: what was your uh, quote from stack overflow last night it was something like um like once you understand this it'll be obvious or something <laughs> <Right. or something. laughs>
1: yes you, everything is obvious once you understand it that's yes. not helpful <laughs> yeah but yeah. you but you see i mean people will do that and they'll go okay i've I've said it's going to be obvious once you understand it. So I'm, I'm covered. <laughs> it's like, no, nope, you're just deluding
0: yourself. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Magnus. Very nice to meet you. And uh, hopefully we can get together in person some somewhere sometime and uh, do some yes, fun.
2: Thanks for having me on. It was fun.
0: Thanks. And thanks for the great language. I, uh, I think there's a lot of really, really amazing stuff here. So yeah. thank you.